institutions as old as this country, like the United States Supreme Court, are hearing oral arguments yeah. on Zoom. I mean, it's it's taking tradition and folks that have historically not utilized that type of technology to there's there's not a whole lot of other choice. Yeah. So it's I think it's going to change the way we office. I think it's going to change the way we interact. And again. What you can't change and what fintech cannot replace is that personal relationship. Yep. And as much as we want to all office from our homes, you've got to be out. You've got to have the, the developed relationship. And again, it's as important in the good times. As I said, everybody wants to bank you when you don't need it. Right. But then when you get into the ditch or you have trouble, that's when the, the relationship just is, is so key. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you for joining me today on the Fort. I'm pumped to have a longtime friend of mine, James Hill, with me today. We're going to have an interesting episode. James is the chief strategy officer and president of the Fort Worth market for a local community bank called Access Bank. And when the COVID crisis hit, he was one of the first people I called and mainly uh, one, just as a friend, but two, it was really the first time I had ever asked myself, like, what the hell happens on this side of the bank in good times, bad times in general, and what? You know, after borrowing hundreds of millions of dollars over the year, it was uh, it struck me that I had never taken a lot of time to figure out what things look like on the other side. So James has a great story. We'll hear about that. And then we'll just kind of go into the life as a banker and what a borrower could think about to see the, the total picture. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. One other fun note is the River District that we've been developing for the last couple of years. James, in a prior career, was part of a, a team that assembled some of the land that we eventually bought. So we've, we've gone way back. We've shared a lot of stories, and James is super interesting. So we'll just kick it off. Can you just tell us like a little bit about yourself and your story? Sure, sure. Interestingly, I never set out to be a banker, as most people may or may not do. Uh, I had the fortune or misfortune of graduating college this uh, December after September 11th. Yep. Uh, so left the University of Texas at Austin, you know, strong finance background. Uh, jobs were not very uh, plenty at the time. So I actually moved home back to Fort Worth, try to find kind of a niche here. That's when I you know, was brokering some transactions, did some land assemblages over around TCU and here in the River District. Yep. Uh, and then sort of fell into banking by accident. Uh, yep. A friend called me and said, have you ever thought about being a banker? I said, no, not really not no, but heck no. Yeah. But uh, kind of pushed me in that direction, and I've been kind of doing it ever since. So I uh, started off on the more on the consumer side, did residential mortgages for high net worth families and individuals, um, moved to commercial, commercial real estate, then ran the private bank for Texas Capital here in the market. And then uh, about six months ago, or about eight months ago, left and uh, joined Access Bank, which is a, just for talking purposes, about $450 million bank uh, headquartered in Denton, Texas. Yep. Uh, four locations in Denton, Dallas, and Tarrant County. Yep. Um, it's been a pretty good experience. So how long have you been a banker? Technically, I got into banking in 2008. So let's say 12 years. Yep. And and you are not, uh, and I don't mean this negatively to bankers, but you're not the prototypical banker. We've always talked about how uh, like our relationship's been more of like 
I don't want to say I have a partnership with all my bankers, but you've always thought of things often like a principal or like a investor um, or an owner. And so it's always just been interesting to get your feedback. Well, I appreciate you saying that. You know, it's inter- a lot of bankers, you know, right, wrong or different, haven't necessarily had careers outside of banking. Yep. Uh, they went through their credit analyst program. They, you know, it's a great, that's a great track for those that are interested in banking as a career. Yep. I kind of came in it from the other way. And yep. it was, it's kind of been an endearing quality to some of my customers where, uh, some of the things that you know borrowers want and some of the things that bankers want aren't necessarily contradictory to each other. So there are deals to be made and or negotiations that can work that again, both sides are getting what they want. It's just a little bit yeah, a little bit different way to put it together. And and a banker really is kind of a deal person. They might not be uh, on the equity side of it, but they're part of the deal. They're looking at the deal through, maybe a more critical lens, but I mean, you've now probably seen and funded hundreds of deals. You no, know and, and what the, works, what doesn't work. And it's fun to see how people structure their deals, right? Real yep. estate, CNI, private equity, oil and gas. You think, oh, all, all real estate deals are the same. You know this, Chris. The same transaction can be structured infinity different ways. And yep. it's kind of see interesting to see how people do their business, how they structure it, who they bring in as partners, how much leverage do they can they tolerate? You know, what's their aversion to risk? It's I like seeing that level of transaction and kind of sifting through all the different. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of variables. There's a lot of ways things can go right and a lot of ways things can go wrong. There, there really are. To kind of paint a picture, the uh, the virus hit and we we're in kind of that first week of kind of the market was in free fall. Panic was setting in. I was very kind of shooken up by it. And you were like literally one of the first five people I called. And I I called James and I'm like, James, I need like 30 minutes. And you're like, okay. And um, to preface that over the years, um, I'm unbelievably grateful for all of our bankers. I have had a relationship with them. But um, going into that conversation with you, I just said, hey, it looks like the world's about to get turned upside down. I'm a real estate owner. I have debt. Uh, while I think most of my assets are in good condition, uh, that's what everybody said through every cycle. I've talked to a lot of people that lived through the 80s uh, and the SNL crisis. And no matter how good an asset seemed, it was 90% of them weren't good enough. And so uh, I just started by asking you like, if something starts going wrong, what should I do? And you're answer i was uh, maybe i was expecting some technical answer you just said treat your banker as a person it's a relationship to start communicating with them keep working on the relationship and treat it like that it's not some robotic you know computer that's just gonna slam you in default and now you're and i it was the best advice i've given and it was the easy answer that i just wasn't expecting so maybe we'll just start off with that is like how do you view your relationship with borrowers and how should borrowers think about their relationship with banks? Sure. And uh, having a relationship with your bank or your banker is just key. If you're going to be an entrepreneur or a business person, and again, I don't care what business you're in, you need to know uh, your bank is your partner. And yep. Most people don't realize when they go borrow money, a lot of times folks will go out and they'll rate shop and they'll always search for maybe the lowest rate or the most leverage. And and again, I think what they forget is, is that's fine and good until things go south. And when things go south, you want the person across the table from you to know your name, know your kids' names, know what, what your favorite food is. And yeah. frankly, I mean, again, you've got to have that relationship because everybody wants to bank you when things are going great. Yep. It's when things go south. 
those folks that will sit across the table from you to help you work it out. Absolutely the most important thing, in my opinion, is to communicate. I think I explained to you that day, and I wanted to take the opportunity on this podcast to, to talk about it. But I think if you understand how banks work and the accounting of how they treat a loan once it's booked on their balance sheet, I think is helpful for why that communication is important and necessary. Let's talk about it. Let's do it. Uh, so most people don't realize when a bank lends you money, and let's just use do math in our heads. Let's yeah. say a bank lends you $100,000. Okay. When they give you $100,000, they're actually generally only giving you about 10000 of its own equity or money towards the transaction. Okay. The other $90,000, 90% for talk, for just for math, right? is other people's money. It's deposits that have been housed at the bank. And so when a bank lends you that $10,000, you know, not only are they expecting you to pay them the interest on the money they've given you, but yeah. they're also going to have to give that $90,000 back to their depositors when they come to the bank and ask for it. Right. So there's always this game and this system that banks use. And again, the reason they're regulated in the OCC or the Banking Commission or the FDIC uh, oversees banks is that they're constantly monitoring to make sure that banks have sufficient capital to be able to return money back to their depositors when asked. Uh, and so people say, well, how do banks make any money when they're only lending money at you know 3% interest rate or 4% interest rate? Well, okay. 3% interest rate on $100,000 is $30,000, you know, $3,000 a year in interest, yep. which on $100,000 isn't a lot of money. But yep. if I'm making $3,000 on a $10,000 of my money, yep. that's a pretty good return. That's 30%, right? Yep. So uh, banks make money by basically leveraging their own balance sheet with other people's deposits. When... A loan is booked, when that $100,000 loan is booked, uh, banks have a reserve requirement. So they say, listen, just in case this loan doesn't get repaid, uh, I'm going to go put some money up against that loan on my balance sheet. And it's called a loan loss reserve. And so you know, if, if it's a really easy loan, if it's you know, low loan to value, it's a you know, great credit score, I don't have to put that much against it. But if that loan starts deteriorating or the property value diminishes or uh, there's a default, all of a sudden, instead of, let's call it 1% yep. with my reserve requirement, it might go to 10%. And is that a formula that y'all are creating at the bank level? Or is that like a federal like a rule or formula that everybody abides by? Fair question. Every bank has to, to, to determine its own reserve methodology. Yep. That methodology is part of the review process from the regulators and is constantly looked at and reviewed. Uh, and again, it's it, it, uh, it's 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 as much of an art as it is a science. Yep. So when they come in, they're looking at your loans to say, okay, what what is the credit quality of these loans? You know, are, are any of these in trouble? And if they are in trouble, how much do you have against it in case it goes bad? And they're constantly reviewing how much is in that loan loss reserve. It's kind of a tricky, and it's and it's reviewed quarterly. No, the depending on the type of bank you are, depending on who your regulator is, the review cycle differs. Because I feel like I'm all like. You know, you, you we bank with enough people and, and we talk to people. You're always hearing a banker say, like, the feds are in our office this week or like we're being audited this week. So does that happen quarterly or once a year? Or? So our bank, I believe, is on an 18-month cycle. Yep. Um, and it's an alternating between the state and the FDIC. Yep. Uh, again, depends on the size bank you are, depending on your asset size, depending on the type of makeup of your portfolio. Again, banks that have trouble at some point uh, typically get put on a quicker cycle. Yep. Um, when I was at uh, my previous bank, I think we had nine different regulatory agencies that were in our bank at any given time. Yep. Um, you know, OCC, the FDIC, the SE, uh, just you name it, lots of, uh, 
lots of acronyms. Uh, so the point is, is that as loans deteriorate, banks are going to be required to put more of their capital against the loan. So it's important that they understand uh, where a loan is at any given point in time. So I think my advice to you that day and would be the same as what I would give you today is if there's an issue or even a potential issue, go talk to your banker early and talk about it. Yep. And the thing that bankers don't like is just like, you know, most businesses are surprises. On that, so you, you, uh, a bank puts up, call it uh, 10,000 of the 100,000. If a bank, if a loan is going into default or it's not paid back in full, are y'all the first 10,000 that loses and then the, the, the depositors 90 is next? So y'all are the first to lose, but you also make the interest or how does that work? So if the loan goes into default, the bank has to take net income off of its income statement or capital on its balance sheet against the whole loan. I mean, depositors are not at risk of losing money. And uh, FDIC ensures that depositors won't ever lose more than $250,000 per account. But technically, a solvent bank, a a depositor should never lose a single penny. So if if I call you and and, and it's not, hey... uh, I'm already in trouble. It's just, hey, I own a building and I'm just letting you know that maybe things will go great. Maybe they won't. But I just wanted to like kind of start having the conversation. What do you do after that call? Like, do you does that come up at the next committee? Does that do you go flag something in the system or is it, hey, let's just keep talking about it until something's actually happened? Uh, hard to answer with any real blanket uh one size fits all answer. It depends yeah. on the size of the loan. Again, a hundred thousand dollar loan at the current bank that I'm uh, where I reside is is a lot different than a hundred thousand dollar loan at my previous bank. Right. Uh, you know, a hundred thousand dollar loan at a thirty seven billion dollar bank is going to get treated a little differently than okay. it would be here. But again, uh, a good bank with good credit uh, relationships between the credit side of the bank and the lending side of the bank that's going to again typically a memo to file. I may pull my credit officer aside and say, "Hey, I just want to let you know, I just had a." conversation with Chris. This is what's happening in his business. I don't think there's a cause for alarm today, but we might want to start thinking about it. And then yep. what, what most people don't realize is that banks, I mean, by my typical day, I deal with 20 or 30 different borrowers. And it's not 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 often that I have somebody that's having similar issues that you are. And the way they may be solving something may be the way that you might need to solve something. So a lot of times, I always say I'm a banker and a psychologist. I'm yeah. constantly talking to people and Again, best practices can be shared across lots of different industries. And uh, again, the, the sooner you tell your banker that there could be a potential issue, the sooner they can get in and help you. And the more deteriorated a loan gets yep. or a relationship gets, the harder it is for the bank to accommodate and make changes. Yep. So once you go silent or I haven't heard from you in six months and you call me that there's an emergency, there's not a whole lot I can do. Yep. I mean, we're already off the cliff. Yep. But if you tell me, you know, as we're headed there, there's some things that can be done, as I said, that are not necessarily detrimental to you or the bank that can soften that and or help solve the problem together. Yeah. I mean, you w- if you have a good relationship with someone, you wouldn't go silent on them for six months and then surprise them. Well, you know, people get in trouble. It's like lots of things. People get in trouble. Uh, even people that you know and care about, they are either ashamed or they get concerned that, hey, maybe if my banker doesn't like me anymore, that's that's not yeah. the way you should feel. It's they don't want you to fail any more than you want to fail. Right. And, uh, they don't want your real estate. They don't want your business. They don't want your asset. Again, they want to get paid back. Yep. So the sooner you get to the point where you can have that type of dialogue, 
both of you end up trying to solve for the same solution. So now I've called you and I'm said I'm not making my payment this month or I'm about to go into the first uh, form of default. I've been communicating with you all along. We, we have a great relationship, but but you know if tenants gone dark and they're not paying rent, then what happens? So if you came and said, "Hey, listen, I've got a tenant that's gone dark." I've, again, I'm assuming now we've been in contact for a long period of time and. Uh, again, so right now, a lot of banks are giving some of their borrowers some um, 60 to 90 day potential uh, deferrals of of principal. So yeah. look, pay your interest payment. Let's push principal for a little while. Frankly, uh, I'm pretty pleased with the regulatory agency's response to COVID-19 and yeah. allowing banks to offer their customers flexibility during this time. Uh, I mean, again, the trickle down effect of what happens when a tenant doesn't pay rent is actually pretty substantial. Yep. A tenant doesn't pay rent. The center starts struggling. The developer or the the property owner then has trouble with its debt payment. And then the bank gets... So again, you've got this trickle-down effect. And so the sooner we can work, frankly, towards, as I said, the same solution, the better. Yep. Uh, but if you missed a payment, uh, again, depends on the transaction, depends on how much equity is in the deal, depends on how it's structured. Again, it is not uncommon for me to sit down with a borrower and come up with a plan. Yep. Listen, we can't make our payment this month, but this is what we can pay. Or maybe instead of, um, there's all sorts of workout solutions that yeah. can, can It's be not had. a one size fits all. It's really it's not. Again, it's, it's just like the deal is made on the front end to, to book the transaction. There's yep. deals to be made during and after to, to try to help get it through the. So what, so maybe asking it just a different way for maybe a listener that if I don't have a good relationship with you and I have been silent and then I call you and I say, I'm going to miss my payment and we're not friendly anymore. Um, maybe we're not friendly, but I, I've caught you by surprise. I haven't been a good borrower. And now I'm coming in saying, sorry, I, I'm defaulting. Is it still a one size fits all or is it more of it's like just a, tougher? Yep. Right. I mean, so one of the, the, you, 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 if you ever go to credit training at a bank, they talk about the C's of credit. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and one of the C's is character and yeah. being able to, uh, hey, listen, I've banked Chris for 15 years. He's always paid his agreed. He absolutely wants to make the payment, but this tenant defaulted on its lease payment and that's putting him in a bind. We need to give him a 60-day period. and But in that period, he's agreed not to make any distributions to his partners. And then he's going to take whatever cash he does have and put yeah. it in a reserve account in case things happen. I mean, those are the types of discussions it had. If I didn't have the relationship, it's harder to make those uh, accommodations only because I, and again. What's, what's the point, I guess, then where we, we've sat down, we've, we've worked on a plan, uh, a six-month plan, that doesn't end up working out. Like, it's not that you, the banker, still don't want to be my friend. I guess maybe my question is like, at what point does the government kind of force your hand or whomever is the enforcer to say like, we're now proceeding with, you know, the stuff that isn't fun. Well, look, at it, some point, and I don't want to ever draw the line, you know, yeah. publicly of where that line is, mm -hmm. because it's, again, it's, there's no one size fits all. But at some point, things uh, are determined that they can't work out. There has to be what's a banking called an impairment analysis that yep. says, okay, what is the delta? How do we solve it? And what's the downside here? Most of what I've done in my career is real estate, but it's not terribly dissimilar from oil and gas or business, you know, C&I operating companies. But if there's a, let's take a typical real estate transaction at some point, there's enough default, there's issues on the loan, banks would probably go through some sort of workout process or foreclosure process to then try to sell the asset. Again, foreclosure, again, people get really uh, 
Uh, I, I think the terminology, people don't understand it. What foreclosure is, all it does is it basically sells the asset to satisfy part of the, the obligation to the bank, right? right? So a bank gives you a loan, you know, they take a lien or a, you know, a secured interest in a piece of property that you have, you're in default, they try to sell the property in order to satisfy the loan. And I think what most borrowers don't realize is, is just because, let's just take that $100,000 example. Yeah. Well, if we sold that asset at auction or at foreclosure and there was not enough money generated at that auction to pay back the loan. And the fees that were and the fees and the, to do the, the foreclosure. You know, legal fees, most notes would roll all of that together. Borrowers uh, still are obligated for, for the delta, which yeah. again, but again, at that point, the bank just becomes an unsecured creditor, right? Yeah. It's security has been sold. Uh, again, I think the key is, is <laughs> despite what, what, what it sounds, banks don't want to own your oh, asset, yeah. right? Oh, no, yeah. I know. REO, real estate owned assets on a bank's balance sheet gets treat, treated very poorly. Yep. They don't want that. So they're going to do everything in their power to work with you to avoid that potential situation. Unfortunately, that does happen. And if a bank has a lot of bad loans on the balance sheet, does that affect its ability to like borrow from the Fed or... or assuming that they're still like a business that's uh, moving forward, but they have all these uh, bad loans, like who's judging that? And so just like banks judge loans to borrowers, banks themselves are judged by regulators. Okay. And so uh, banks have different ratings on credit quality and safety and soundness. And at some point, uh, there's enough bad loans on a balance sheet, then uh, there's some memorandums of understanding and there's some regulatory interjection that kind of so prohibits we, a bank's ability to move forward yeah on the same subject but a different question um so if you have personal recourse on a loan uh and you like you followed all the steps things still don't work out the delta was not met uh that becomes i think what we had talked about is you f- either figure out like assuming that it's not a personal bankruptcy issue, but even if it is, is you just kind of figure out like how it's going to get paid out over time. So let's let's talk about that. So yeah. let's take our hundred thousand dollar loan example. And, and is it is it good to take a hundred thousand dollar loan, or is it should we do something like five mil, like something where like what's owed could be something that somebody might not ever be able well, to pay back? Well, let's do the math on a hundred thousand, okay. and then we can add zeros okay. if we want. Fair to enough. Know. Fair enough. But let's say there's a hundred thousand dollar loan, and let's say that uh, after a foreclosure, after a sale of an asset, all the only eighty thousand dollars was generated. Okay, uh, that twenty thousand dollar delta uh, that's still owed to the bank, as I said, the bank simply just becomes an unsecured creditor to that borrower. Yep. Uh, and again, whether my borrower is you individually, whether it's an LLC or an entity, that borrower again, I become an unsecured creditor to that borrower. Yep. For me to collect that $20,000 rather than go into the foreclosure process or the courthouse steps to get to get the collateral, I actually have to go through the court system yep. and seek what's called a deficiency judgment. Saying, okay. judge, look, he told me he owed me $100,000. I've only collected $80,000. There's a $20,000 delta. And basically, that is the process by how you get it. Uh, a lot of times, folks will hear uh, the term a guarantor or a guarantee on a loan. If I lend money to an LLC or an entity... Typically, the the asset or the real estate is owned by that entity. But if there's that delta that's not covered by the asset, first, I'm going to go to the borrower or the LLC, which at that point probably has very little or hopefully has more, but see what they can solve. And then at some point, I then have to go pursue pursue the guarantor for the delta or the deficiency judgment. And if I'm like 
I don't have, I still don't have the money. That's where you work it out in the courts to figure out how it gets settled. Correct. Okay. I asked you a question that day and I said, uh, and just to be clear to listeners, I think this is just, it's, it's just fascinating stuff. And it's just questions that I think we should all know the answer to. And, um, you know, not something that I would condone, like taking advantage of, but now we're going to talk about non-recourse loans. So you, when you read like headlines or you read the paper, uh, or like an article about some, it's like, you always hear the thing, throw the keys back at the bank. It's a non-recourse loan. They can't come get me. I'm done working on it. And you had an answer that, uh, was like, that's not exactly how it works. Well, uh, true non-recourse. When you talk about non-recourse, most folks, uh, what they mean by that is that there's a non-guarantor that stands by behind the entity. Right. Uh, for a bank to be willing to do a loan non-recourse, typically there's going to be a whole lot more equity in the transaction. Yep. It's not going to have as much leverage. There's going to be a larger cushion of cash flow. That asset would have to deteriorate much further than a loan that uh, has or uh, needs that recourse to to, to cover the difference. Um, but when you folks that say, hey, I'm just turning the keys back in, I said, you just have to be careful on many of those, depending on who the borrower is as an entity or an individual. Uh, because when you start going through the loan process at another bank, after you've done some of those things, some of the questions that are asked to you in the loan application and the, and the credit process say, have you ever been delinquent on a loan uh, granted deed in lieu of foreclosure? You know, have you ever throwing the keys back at a bank. I mean, those types of questions get asked. And again, yep. you run yourself into a risk of hurting your ability to borrow in the future. And then I asked you, um, so let's just say, again, more equities down, but the property's gone down enough in value that we've burned through the equity. And when you go to sell the loan, you haven't made up the difference. You told me something like, I'm going to have a huge tax liability. So that was, it. yeah. So one of the things that happened back in the SNL crisis in the late 80s, early 90s, and Thankfully, then I was in, I guess, late middle school, early high school. But what ended up happening is, is you had a lot of folks that did not have enough equity in their projects or in, or in the, again, the whole system basically just shut down. Yep. And so what ended up happening is they'd go work a deal out with the bank and they'd do everything they could. And they'd say, guys, well, you know, I know I know, I was a guarantor and I know it was 100000 There's a 20000 You know, I know I owe you 20000 What if I just paid you $1,000 a month for the next 12 months and we'll come up with it? Well, yeah. at some point, banks were writing off a portion of that debt. Yep. Um, and when they did, bar- borrowers, you know, again, thinking that it, they had worked everything out appropriately with the bank, you know, were much relieved, but then later found out that they got uh, 1099 in the mail from the, basically, that was sent to the IRS that was forgiveness of debt. Yep. And again, when a bank, somebody forgives debt against you, that is technically income. And folks were then having to pay income taxes with money they didn't have on debt that was forgiven on transactions that got unwound. So even though it's non-recourse and they're not being asked to pay off the delta, what they are paid, what they are being asked to pay is whatever the tax rate is on the amount that they didn't pay back. And was that just an SNL thing or would that be the same that happens today? Any, so the hundred thousand dollar deal. Let's let's set up with. I, I'm not an accountant. Yeah, uh, nor am I an attorney. But I would say that you know, when there is a forgiveness of debt, the entity that receives that income or benefit would have a tax obligation. Yep. Uh, so again, my the point of this is is that I would hope, and again, the point of me wanting to come on today was before it ever got to that, I yeah. would hope that you've already talked to your banker. The lawyers have already had a chance to come in and take a look at it. I think my other advice to you that day is if there's any concern, 
pick up the phone and call your lawyer, get yep. three or $400 for an hour to talk to that person yep. over some concerns might save you a whole lot on the back end. Because again, yep. if you don't know what your downside is, yep. you can't make a responsible decision on how to move forward. And and that was what I said on the phone. I just said, I need a banking 101 class. I said, I don't know where the world's headed. Everything's fine now. But again, middle of March, things were looking pretty uh, bleak. Like you just said, it was good to know what the worst case scenarios and downside look like. And after everything we've just talked about, your original statement of just have a great relationship and over communicate with your bank, no matter how bad it gets, it won't get as bad. And I want to take a couple seconds. A lot of times people ask me, well, should I move everything to you as a banker? Do I need to have one bank? Do I need to have multiple banks? And my answer is generally pretty consistent, which is be relevant wherever you are. Right. Um, And I think you saw this out of the PPP program, which was the SBA program, the payroll program that came out. Again, uh, you have a lot of folks that bank with one of the big money center banks. And, you know, I've been blessed and I enjoy working for a place that has direct one-on-one personal relationships with each of our borrowers. And when they pick up the phone and say, hey, my business is is experiencing some concern from, from this latest pandemic, can you help me? We can actually do that and not just get lost in a you know, an online computer application, we actually help hand walk them through it. And, yep. and, and again, it's just have that relationship, know who they are. Um, you know, again, it's, if I said, if you don't have yourself, the cell phone number of your banker, that's yeah. probably not the relationship I'm talking about. For sure. I, I went and put your name in all caps that day in my phone and put, <laughs> put, a, put emoji hearts around it. Um, well, you just mentioned PPP. I wanted to chat about it just really quick. You know, even when we had talked, this was before PPP had been dreamt up or anything. And then the irony of it was when everybody was starting to need to work with their banks or communicate, bankers were bogged down for weeks dealing with PPP. So I guess my question is, or a couple of questions is, um, when were you notified that that would become like a full-time job for you for a few weeks? And how was the message, commu- like, because it seemed like everything was so confusing. People didn't know. I, I think we submitted our form five different times. Every time we did it, we were told it was right. And then there was an update. Was it just a flurry of information and figure it out? Or, you know, given the magnitude of what was taken on by yeah. that program, it, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, but it was as smooth as I guess it could be. Yep. Uh, you know, I think what was frustrating for both borrowers and bankers at certain points in the process is that bankers were finding out about updates to the program at the same time the borrowers were. As yep. you said, there were a lot of folks that filled out applications multiple times. And again, there was a lot of whittling down that process again, but they were trying to get out as quickly as they could to yep. provide that relief that the program was designed to create. So, so I'm turning my application into you. Your job as the banker was to vet the application and then submit it to the government. What was the banker's role in the whole thing? More than anything, and, and again, I plead the fifth a little bit yeah. here. I, I'm brand new to this bank. And again, this they did a terrific job through the PPP process. But you know, I didn't have a huge book of business when yeah. I left my old bank. Uh, to come to this new one. And so after this podcast episode, you're going to have the biggest book of business. (laughs) I hope so. I hope so. No, frankly, it was interesting. The the bankers kind of, I would use the more term liaison. They weren't really making a credit decision. They were trying to help, frankly, assist borrowers and folks that needed access to the capital, put the application together and provide the information that the SBA in turn needed to be able to process what uh, a, a, a number. Yep. And so the bankers were putting it into a system called ETRAN. 
that went into the SBA. The SBA then generated this ID number, this approval number, and then it was the banker's jobs to uh, distribute cash to those borrowers. And then uh, we're just now sort of entering the phase. And again, there's still lots of data that's coming out and we're all studying up on it again. We all hit the books uh, you know, a few weeks ago when the PPP program was initiated. Now, that eight-week process of where they were supposed to spend the, fu- the funds on payroll yep. is coming to an end. Now, there's going to be the forgiveness side. That was my next question. So, what again, do y'all still have left to do? I'm just going to answer with yes. Yes. You don't know yet. <laughs> uh, we, and, we have lots to do. And again, that's part of the process, too. And so you're starting to see guidance and, uh, you know, SBA and the banking, you know, the, the banking agencies or the banking uh, associations are starting to come up with that. All right. We're going to take some questions from uh, Twitter. To what extent does the reputation of the borrower matter? In other words, would he prefer to spread his loans out among more borrowers he doesn't know well or concentrate his loans on fewer borrowers whom he has long-term relationships? That is a great question. And I would actually say, I mean, you know, one, it's hard to say until we get an application or we actually go through the process of understanding what it is, but the relationship of a borrower and the reputation of a borrower is a really big deal. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, at the end of the day, we can try to numerically come up with ways that we lend money, uh, but at the end of the day, I'm lending money to people who I have a, a, a strong relationship with that I believe have the capacity to pay, yep. pay, pay, pay it back. So uh, I would say the answer is really more towards the latter. I want to lend to the folks that I have a, a really strong confidence in. And again, it's, it, it's a balance though. Cause again, I, until you get a relationship with somebody and that relationship isn't just a one-time thing, it's built up over time. So you're constantly bringing in new folks, but always trying to take care of the folks that have been with you for, for years. But again, the, the, the strength of reputation is frankly, one of the most important things. And that's what you told me that day, even about, uh, the folks that lived through the SNL crisis, where no matter how good you were at your job or at real estate, it, it was just, you didn't end up making it, but you said, you know, just because some of those people didn't end up paying back those loans, the way they handled themselves through the process, uh, you know, secured a, or it it gave them more validation that they'd be able to borrow again. And again, I'm uh, having not been in the workforce yeah. at that time, but I, I, it is not uncommon for me to talk to to seasoned or veteran bankers where they tell me about uh, some of the folks that went above and beyond, and frankly, did everything they could within their power. And, yep. Um, you know, there were still some of those that completely sl- survived through that period. But again, reputation and and doing the right thing is frankly one of the most important things. I said it's the and that's in everything. Not I mean, just that's that's life. I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but you said that one of the C's in your credit program is uh, character. What are the other C's? Okay. Uh, I know number one is character. Then there's cash flow or capacity, capital, collateral, and I think it's condition. I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> again, most of the fo- most banks really do focus on, again, you always have to look at cash flow and collateral and the transaction has to make sense, but who you're lending to yep. and their you know, strength of character and ability to repay is, is, is a huge, huge portion of our credit decision. Okay. So kind of coming out of this, can you paint any picture or clarity around what might change at banks or underwriting standards or you know, you talk to a lot of bankers that have in a, a different, I've just heard different things. Some banks are like, this is just stuff like this happens and it's business as usual and we're moving forward. Um, maybe some don't feel that way, but it, maybe are there any kind of like blanket things that will be required of banks going forward or that's not here yet? 
not maybe here not. yet. Or maybe uh, I think here. we'll definitely see some changes. I mean, so uh, a lot of banks that have been around for a while, as I said, small banks versus large banks. There's a pretty big uh, delta between how they behave and how they how they treat things. Yep. Um, you have banks that have been around for a long time that have a lot of legacy loans on the books. Again, it, a lot of it depends on how long this pandemic causes a disruption in the market. Yep. I mean, it, I'll just quote one of my favorite clients and just, uh, frankly, good lifelong friends. And I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm fine. It just depends on how long this lasts. If yep. this is a couple months, I'll be fine. If this is six months, maybe not. If it's a year, we got a problem. And so <laughs> banks are no not dissimilar from our customers' businesses. We're a business. Yep. And it r- really just depends on how long that shock to the system causes uh, any degradation to the to the credit portfolio and and, and so when you hear that like banks are we we keep reading and, and hearing that banks are way better capitalized this time around than oh eight oh nine is that kind of the same answer you just gave it's like they are if this just doesn't go on forever or no, are there certain absolutely. things that banks have done to where I don't want to say they there's no way they could be impacted like they were in oh eight or oh nine but what is uh, being w- more well capitalized now versus 08 and 09 actually mean? And does it mean different things for sizes of banks? I think it means different for different sizes of banks. I mean, again, I was I was just getting into my banking career in 08, 09. Uh, the interesting thing I think is you know, banks are definitely more well capitalized today than they than they were then. Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but. Uh, again, they're holding more capital on their balance sheet, not trying to run at at such tight uh, tight metrics. Uh, we're blessed to be in Texas. I'll tell you, Texas, having done or experienced what it experienced in the SNL crisis in you know late '80s, early '90s, uh, most of those seasoned veterans are still around and yeah. in the banking system, and never really got that far out on the risk curve just because they lived through it before, and so. It kind of depends on who you are and where you are, but yeah. again, I, I think bankers are being uh, smarter with their capital and not necessarily being as risky as they were. I yeah. also think that uh, one of the things that happened in the SNL crisis is is that regulators and folks came in and the shock to the system caused this trickle down. I think again, the the willingness to work with folks that have just had this recent um, blip in the radar from COVID, depending on how long that lasts, but allowing them to to defer some payments again, that willingness to work with them will will allow the system to stay stable longer. You mentioned Texas. Um, I'm trying to ask this question the right way. I know you haven't been a banker in New York, but um, I think I'd asked you a question that day. It's like, if uh, a foreclosure happens, how does it happen? And you kind of said, well, in Texas, um, the, the process kind of moves along quicker. And then you hear about like California and New York where foreclosure could take sometimes three to five years, depending on how well the borrower knows the system would that would a bank have to lend have tighter credit standards in those markets knowing that their like ability to do something if things go wrong are dra- like 90 days versus 5 years a bank is pretty much handcuffed so it goes back to you know, again previous employment and some previous walks in life but you know, you've got to understand the difference between deed of trust states and mortgage states you know different states uh, again, when you when you actually get a mortgage, one of the, my pet peeves is someone says get a mortgage. What a mortgage is actually the securitization of a piece of real estate, right? right? It's giving somebody a secured interest in your property. A mortgage is not a note, right? A mortgage is actually the deed of trust or the actual tying of that real estate. It is the lien itself? Yep. The promissory note, or actually, is the agreement that Got it. I'm lending you money to pay didn't, me back. Didn't know that. 
So the deed of trust, uh, again, deed of trust states and, and mortgage states, and then you have certain states that are foreclosure states, meaning you, you, know, you give a public notice and go through a process of getting your security back. And then you've got, judi- it's basically judicial and non-judicial foreclosure states. So okay. some require a judge in a court system and others don't. So uh, smaller community banks typically don't do a lot of uh, outside of their own state lending for those types of reasons, because each state has lots of different regula- re- regulations. And again, one of the things we look at very importantly at my previous bank is that we made sure to hire lo- local counsel or someone that resided in that state to review loan documents before closing. Again, to address those uh, changes in law and changes in in risk that could could very well be there if a, if a deal goes south. I'm not asking you to predict the future. I think some of the questions that have come in and, and just something I'm interested on is we, we've been talking about in the office is like how to uh, pinpoint value right now. Like how do you underwrite something when there's no like, I mean, you have you see public companies saying that come Q2, they're not going to provide guidance going forward for a quarter or whatever. If I brought you a deal today and we had we have a 15-year relationship, you bank me, I haven't defaulted on anything, I'm still good, and I show you my underwriting, I guess, what's the status of banks figuring out? Are, are they like everybody else trying to figure it out? Or is there something that y'all are able to do that gives you a quicker yes or no than maybe the... I mean, it, just like I said, we are not robots. Yep. We are humans. We have a business just like yours. We are very much trying to figure out yep. uh, the forecast kind of short, medium, and long-term just as you are. Uh, I think today versus before you're seeing uh, probably a little shorter loan terms, yep. you know, maybe not willing to go out as far. Yep. I think maybe you're seeing maybe a, a little bit less uh, advance in proceeds, maybe not willing to lend quite as much. Yep. Uh, the one thing that's kind of out there right now is pricing. So uh, interest rates, you know, the prime rates dropped 150 basis points since I joined this bank. And yep. so you know, what is the right rate to charge? What is the risk involved? Again, it's it's a fluid process. Yep. Uh, we are still active doing loans with our customers who are presenting good transactions and yep. they're out there. And you mentioned loan maturity, and I don't mean to keep kind of asking maybe the same question in a different form. But again, something I, I even on our, our call that, that day, I didn't ask you this, but it's just come up more and more. If I have a loan maturing in like September of this year, um, how, how do you evaluate whether to extend my loan? Are you forced to get a reappraisal? And if the reappraisal comes and it's now lower, does is the borrower forced to figure out how to come up with the cash to pay down that portion of the loan? And and if that doesn't happen, and I'm like, hey, look, I'm still paying the loan, I'm 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 making good on it. I just your appraiser came in low and you're making me come up with money quick. Um, like how to paint a picture there for me. Sure. And again, it's, I'm not an attorney, yep. nor am I an appraiser. Yep. I'll tell you're you. You're a banker. That <laughs> I try to be. Typically what ends up happening at a maturity and you've got to go back and look at your loan documents. Yep. You know, if you're going back and reappraising, was there a loan to value? Uh, was there a, a, a loan covenant that yep. you had to stay below a certain amount? Again, the reason why banks ask for equity um, down up front and when a loan transaction is initiated is it's supposed to allow for some tolerance should the market shift and go up or down. Right. Uh, again, I, I go back to my default answer, which is talk to your banker early. Yep. Hey, I've got a loan maturing in September. 
Uh, I've had some good tenant activity pre-COVID. Maybe it's on hold right now, but these are my plans. What I ask, what I would like to ask is, could you guys work with me for another year so that I could stabilize it? And you know, one of the things I've heard from other bankers, and you know, again, I'm spitballing, yeah. but hey, what if I put up a hundred thousand dollar reserve to allow for some additional assurances to the bank so that you don't have to downgrade it again? It's part of that discussion. Yeah, uh, and you make you make the banker. Again, armed with information to know how to come up with something that's palpable. Again, their their goal is the same as your goal, which is to get the project finished and yeah. and move forward. Uh, again, I think it also bring this type of environment uh, reiterates uh, something that I've encouraged a lot of my borrowers, which is have optionality periods at the end of their loans. Yeah. So uh, the mini permanent feature to loans, where maybe it's a two or three year loan, but a couple of extension options, even if those options cost money, uh, but that allows for that when when the market or the cyclicality of values is changing, it may not force you into a position to have to renegotiate. Yep. Uh, so again, that's that's mutually beneficial for both. Uh, let me let me answer your appraisal question real quick. Uh, again, differs by property type, differs by bank size, but typically banks don't have to reappraise within. So if it's a new deal, I think you have to have an appraisal that's six months old. Yep. I've, I've seen a few. I think they go out to a year. Yep. Uh, but after a three-year period, typically most groups are going to require you to get a new appraisal. So, uh, again, if there's all if you're doing a five to seven-year deal and it's already built in, you don't have to. But if you're maturing uh, outside of that three-year period, they'll probably have to get you another one. And that was something that was big in 08 and 09. I'm not saying the reappraisals weren't warranted, but they were done at a time when the world was in free fall. And so you're kind of getting this appraisal that maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, but it's like if people had started appraising properties on March 23rd of this year, everything would have been close to zero because people thought the world were ending. It's like, if you have to extend your loan or you're maturing in a time frame when the world's in panic, it's a huge disadvantage. I mean, I'm going to, I'll be vulnerable and say, I think most small to kind of medium-sized real estate uh, people, if you have enough properties one thing we've built in the last 60 days is an interactive dashboard that our whole team can see. We can see every loan, every covenant, every maturity date. Every time we pay off principal, it automatically updates. I can now look at any point in time and see all my loans in one place and everything. But before that, just being candid, the market's been great for 10 years. We, we, we might have gotten a call from our banker that's like, hey, your note's due in 30 days. And they're like, we're just going to extend it for you. Or it was very easy. Like I never really thought of loan extensions. Well, you probably got a call that said your loan matured 30 days ago. I probably did. <laughs> uh, probably did. And in some cases, maybe we had to pay down a little principal. Some cases they just extended it. But now it's, it's, it's something we're hyper-focused on. We now have like a, a certain, like the maturity date is within 18 months. It automatically turns red and it signals our finance team to start at least, hey, tell the bank, hey, we're 18 months away. What do you want to do? And it stays on. It stays red until we've extended it. And that's smart. And again, you you made the comment about an appraisal on March 23rd. I mean, again, you have to think of an appraisal just like a, a balance sheet or a photograph. Yeah. It is a single snapshot of a single moment in time of someone else's opinion of a piece of property. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I still have a decent hopefully but still a decent amount of money in a 401k but again what was my 401k worth january 1st of this year what was it worth march 23rd and what's it worth today right yep. those are three very different numbers and yep. so getting your appraisal during you know ups and downs again 
having those conversations early again, how do you value a property today? You've yeah. had a, let's say you've had a, cl- a tenant that hasn't paid rent in 60 days. Yeah. Well, does the appraiser assume that they're going to start paying rent starting June 1st? Do they say that they're not going to start paying until September 1st? And so again, there's a lot of assumptions and a lot of things that have to be done in that process. And again, that's the crazy thing. It's like, if the, if the, the owner doesn't know how to value it. The bank doesn't really know how to value it. And then this it's like the appraiser does. It's they're usually going off the same information that that um so it's interesting and uh probably by nature the uh, in a downtime they want to err on the side of lower not higher. And so uh it's just just interesting. Um a couple questions have come in on this. Um we might have kind of touched on some of it already, but if you if you're in the owner investor community like I am, everybody's trying to when's the buying opportunities really going to come? It's nine to twelve months, and uh, some of the the logic behind it this time is unlike past cycles, banks are being more empathetic to the situation. They're probably working with borrowers who they might not have worked with for as long, especially on the private side. CMBS, like you're shit out of luck. You you default you are talking to a computer. But in the private side, the thought has been, well, if somebody's kind of getting into trouble, they probably get three to six months to work with the bank. So call it that takes us out to like the end of the year. Then they have a f- maybe two or three more months to kind of figure out what they're going to do. And that banks aren't going to start being kind of, I don't want to say forced to do something, but they're not their time horizon to actually, whether it's foreclose or REO or any of that's probably getting pushed out. So the question is just given the current environment, like what's the bank's sentiment on like what that time horizon looks like given this time around? And maybe you're like everybody else, you don't know, but. Sure. And again, I, I, I think get to be determined. Yep. Right. So you've got this um, the shock to the system, this black swan event that nobody had anticipated uh, you know, the government was came in and you know the PPP program. They issued some, uh, you know, the the Congress approved payments to folks, uh, what making under a hundred thousand dollars a year. There's been all these programs to kind of help keep prop the system up. Uh, again, I have a client that's trying to hire almost a hundred people right now in the Dallas Fort Worth area, and he's having trouble finding folks skilled labor because. Yeah. Uh, some of the stimulus money that they're still receiving is actually they make more generating a slightly higher dollar amount than they would if they were employed. So again, the fallout or the shock to the system, I don't think anyone knows. Again, yeah. I think uh, again, I don't speak for the bank. I think it's smart that you know we're, we're constantly talking to our borrowers, we're yeah. talking to our regulators. I think everybody's, as you said, still figuring uh, being it out. As, as empathetic as they can to try to work with the system. Again, nobody wants. But the thought is, is like at some point. I'm not saying empathy is, is, is a forever thing, but like the situation has to come, like at some point we have to get back to some type of normalcy. And I, I'm, I guess you answered it. Like Sometimes we have to get back to some level of normalcy. Yeah, nobody knows. Um, all right, we'll kind of bring it down. I thought this was an interesting question. It has nothing to do with uh, COVID or the situation, but it was how do you start a bank and how uh, much liquidity do you need to start a bank? A small community bank. God, that's a fair question. Uh, I have never done that, so yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, you know, there's been like, could I go start a bank, or do I need to get a license? You've got to. So banks are regulated, as I said. Yeah. So there are state banks and federally chartered banks, and then within those systems, there's savings banks, there's credit unions, there's all there's there's numerous categories of financial institutions that can accept deposits and lend people money and. 
uh, as I said, most most folks don't realize banks in their core nature, that's what they do. Yeah. They take in deposits and they lend people money, you know, and then they bolt on ancillary services and you know, treasury management, and there's all sorts of bolt-on fees, but that's what they do in essence. To take other people's deposits, again, as I said, for FDI insurance, the insurance, uh, you've got to have a you've, you've got to have a charter. Yep. Uh, and it depends on where you get that charter. I'll tell you what's interesting over the past time period, and I, I could probably find some statistics for you, but the major- there have been very few startup banks yep. uh, over the last, call it, 10-year period. Uh, Is you've that seen, Texas thing or national? It's national. I don't remember... Uh, the point is, is there's, it's difficult to start a bank. It's right. a long process because you've got to go through a lot of legal paperwork. You've got to go through that chartering process. Uh, you started to see increased merger and acquisition uh, activity within the banking space. So big banks merging with other big banks, which is creating a lot of, um, and I think in the last two or three years, there's been two or three banks that were created either as a merger of equals or the acquisition of other large banks. And so mm-hmm. now all of a sudden you've got 30, 40, $50 billion banks in Texas. And again, it's a further divide between your smaller community banks and right. your call it regional size banks. And still one of the interesting things about the banking system is the the majority of deposits in this country are held by a really, really small percentage of institutions. Yeah. So your money center banks are called money center banks for a reason. They've, yeah. they've got a lot of the available it's, deposits. Yeah. Maybe a, a quick question on, you know, technology and it has, you know, again, not a, really a, to this period in time, but just in general, uh, you're starting to see these fintech companies coming on and, uh, you know, fees that used to be uh, table stakes are getting wiped away. I mean, you can now trade for no trading fees. Is the future of banking, uh, can you give any insight into like, where banking's headed over the next decade is there's a lot of speculation, but something interesting, maybe somebody would want to know. Well, I wish I knew obviously more in depth because again, I'm, I'm pleased and, and privileged to work for a bank that's really forward on the technology side. Yep. I think just like your business and a lot of folks listening's business, uh, they've had to learn and adapt and use technology to operate from afar. I mean, I think it's pretty fascinating. We've been able to operate a 400, $450 million bank with folks in different regions and working from home and taking care of kids. And uh, again, remote deposit capture, being able to take a picture of a check from your cell phone, just electronic banking in general. Again, it's it's already moved forward. This uh, pandemic has caused a lot of us to have to, push to it utilize forward. it and yeah. push it forward. I mean, my mother would not have taken a picture of a check to save her life yep. three months ago. She wanted to drive down to the bank. She wanted to you know sign it. She t- takes her check register and does it manually. And again, yep. This has caused a lot of folks to come up the learning curve. I, yep. just, I thought it was interesting. We actually implemented Zoom back in January, February, not because of the pandemic, but because uh, now that the bank is spread out to three counties and Denton and Fort Worth and Dallas, all of a sudden it was becoming hard to come in for a 30-minute call. Where So we set up Zoom to be able to do that from afar and yep. can just, frankly, by luck because yep. we didn't want to have to drive an hour each way to, to have a quick meeting. And so. But this causes this is this pandemic has caused us to utilize it more. Now yeah. almost every meeting's done in Zoom, and yeah. now it's frankly made us a lot more effective and efficient at what we do. Yep. Yeah, I'm actually going to talk more about this on an episode I'm recording on Friday. But the your point on your mother taking, uh, you know, now doing remote deposit. Um, I read some statistic that like online technology and software. is doubling because this whole generation that never adopted it kind of refused to to do it 
weren't ordering on Amazon yet, still went to the grocery store and got their groceries or have been forced over the last 60 days to learn it. And they're probably not going back now that they know how to do it so easily. Um, I mean, institutions as old as this country, like the United States Supreme Court, are hearing oral arguments yeah. on Zoom. I mean, it's it's taking tradition and folks that have h- historically not utilized that type of technology to there's there's not a whole lot of other choice. Yeah. So it's I think it's going to change the way we office. I think it's going to change the way we interact. And again, what you can't change and what Finn can't fintech cannot replace is that personal relationship yep. and as much as we want to all office from our homes you've got to be out you've got to have the the developed relationship and again it's as important in the good times as it is uh, and again it's as i said everybody wants to bank you when you don't need it right but then when you get into the tr- ditch or you have trouble that's when the the relationship just is is so key yep god so it's, we're going to end on that note that is uh that's and I hope my mom didn't hear my comment earlier. <laughs> that well, that is the true. <laughs> that is the truest thing is you want to be banked when nobody wants to bank you, not when everybody wants to bank you. That's when the opportunities are. Well, look, man, uh, thank you for joining me today. I the the goal was hit. Uh, this paints a really good picture for how uh, you know the normal borrower can now look at kind of their lender and what they're going through. And um, I appreciate you just sharing wisdom. Well, I appreciate you having me. And again, I, I think it's important that, uh, that the folks get out there and, and, and if they don't have a banker, find one, develop that relationship. And as I said, be relevant wherever you are. For sure. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again. And I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.